So I, I think when I, you know, when we talk about, um, about Jewish leadership, the insight that I, I got while preparing the discussion was that indeed it's, it's Jewish leadership uh, that we're, you know, that's, we're going to highlight, uh, of course, but it's also going to be Jewish greatness. Because what we find again and again in history uh, is that the, the leader of the Jews is most often the greatest, you know, most developed, most spiritually capable Jew uh, around. Um, while other leaders, and you know, other, you know, like leaders of corporations or leaders of, uh, you know, in political leaders are not necessarily what we would say the most upstanding people. And what's interesting is that, as you know, as in Jewish communities, they, there's been a, I don't, know, I don't know if it's an effort or, or a concentrated effort, or just, that's just the way it shook out, that the leader is most frequently the one who is most spiritually developed. So it's Jewish leadership, but it's really also Jewish greatness, and we'll see really why that's relevant to us, you know, uh, because you might say, hell, Rabbi, we're talking about Jewish leadership. What does that have to do with me? I'm a simple guy, right? I'm just, I'm a follower. Uh, but we'll find that really uh, the qualities that we find amongst the greatest Jewish leaders are qualities that we all have to strive to achieve ourselves. So if we were to make a poll of the greatest Jewish leader of all time, what would be your vote? Moses. Yeah. Moses, yeah. Moses, Moses. Everyone, anyone who wants to disagree with that? People say Maimonides. Maimonides? Some of the commentators on the Bible. I don't mean, you know, because... They have a different kind of leadership because they're explaining the Torah. To he the wasn't people. a leader of the whole. Maimonides was. I don't, I don't mean a leader. He was just well, in Israel or wherever he went back. Okay, but he was—he was a leader. No one could deny that. Yeah. But everyone, you say, no one's going to argue that. My, okay, fine. You know, we could we could we could debate and discuss that. But it seems that people, whenever I ask this question, everyone seems to go with Moses. I think that's probably the right answer, uh, and. Question number two, if you were to highlight, you know, peak Moses, like what's the highlight of his life? What's his grandest achievement? What's the one thing that Moshe's legacy is most well known for? He led the Jews out of Egypt into Israel. Okay, that's, that, you know, that's what I, maybe, that's a one good answer. What else? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, okay. The burning bush. Burning bush, a lot of things we would say. Uh, gave us, I would say, probably gave us a Torah. Yeah. So, what could be more of a greater legacy than that? But that's part of his leadership. Okay, that's part of the whole episode, right? That's right. That's right. So, listen to the Torah guys that I found here. Um, we find the last eight verses of the Torah talk about the death and the legacy of Moshe. Uh, there's a whole debate in the Talmud as to who wrote that. Did Moshe write that himself prophetically, or did maybe Joshua write that? Uh, that's the two op- opinions of, of the Talmud. But the last verses kind of give us this, you know, this eulogy almost of, of the highlights, the achievements of Moshe, and it reads as follows. Never again has there arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom Hashem had known face to face. That's number one. I think I highlights. Moshe was a great prophet. And we learn about prophecy, and I want to include that in the winter curriculum, just to have a discussion of what prophecy is and all the different elements of, of prophecy. But this verse indicates that Moshe's prophecy was different than everyone else's prophecy. And there was no prophecy, no prophet that reached the levels of Moses. Okay, that seems like a good thing to talk about. 
uh, as evidenced by all the signs and wonders that Hashem sent him to perform in the land of, of Egypt, like what Bernie said, took us out of the land of Egypt, all the miracles, uh, against Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, and by all the strong hand and awesome power that Moses performed before the eyes of all of Israel, le'enei kol Yisrael, that's the last words of the Torah. Thus concludes the Torah. And what does this mean? So Rashi tells us what this means, that Moses, Moses put us face to face. How so? That Moshe could summon God. All the other prophets, if God spoke to them, great. Otherwise, they didn't have no prophecy. Moshe was able to summon prophecy. He was the only one who was able to do that. Okay? And what's this mighty hand that he, he, he got the Ten Commandments, like someone else said, gave us the Torah? And what is this awesome power? That's all the miracles that happened. You know, he gave us water from the rock, and he gave us manna from heaven, and he split the sea. All the miracles. And then what's the last thing performed before the eyes of all of Israel? Says Rashi. What does that mean? It's that Moshe got inspired to break the tablets. You know, Moshe comes down from the mountain uh, 40 days later. He finds out the Almighty kind of foreshadows the fact that the people are sinning. He sees the revelry that's going on over there. And he takes the tablets that he's holding, right, from the handiwork of the Almighty. Tablets that you can read the same thing on both, on both sides. That the, that the letters are floating in the ear. He takes it, he smashes it. He goes, grabs the golden calf and grinds it up into a fine dust. Throws it on the water, gives the people a drink. And there's a, 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 an outbreak of a plague, and 3,000 people die, and the Almighty says, let's destroy the Jewish people, we'll start from scratch, you'll be the new leader, forget about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we'll start with just a new, a new nation, Moses, you'll be the and he engages in prayer, back and forth, and these are all highlighted um, uh, in, in, in you know, the, the annals of the great prayers and all of history, and Moshe says, if, if you don't want, if you're not going to destroy the people, erase me from your book, and eventually, God finally uh, accedes to Moshe's demands, and he forgives the people, and he gives them a, a new set of tablets. That's the story. What does it say? It says in the verse, uh, when Moshe ta- ta- talks about the story, and he says, I broke them before your eyes. Thus, the, uh, when it says over here that Moshe performed before the eyes of all of Israel, that's referring to when Moshe broke the tablets before their eyes. And, concludes Rashi, that the Almighty agreed to this decision, that he says that you broke, Yasher Kochacha Sheshibarta, thank you that you broke them. <coughs> it seems like the very last thing that we're told about Moshe, like, what is our, you know, what thought should we take away with us? You know, what's the most dynamic and transcendental episode of Moshe's life? That he broke the tablets. What's going on over here? Aren't there more impressive things that Moshe did? He gave us the Torah, split the sea. He broke the tablets. Why is that put on the pedestal as the greatest achievement of Moshe's life? Like, why is that the last thing that we're saying? Like, what, what's the last thing that we say for the Torah that Moshe broke it before the eyes of all of Israel? That's, that's remarkable, Moses. Like, that's what we have to take away with us. Is that because he wasn't going to tolerate Well, I'm saying maybe. Well, it seems like he has the intolerance. He's uh, resolute, if you will. Yeah. But that was also a major moral decision of his, taking the Jews out of Egypt, etc. That was God told him to do that. 
he kept sort of marching along, but this was his decision to do that. Mm-hmm. Also the fact that God split the sea, right? I mean, he didn't do it. And leading them out was really him them out. Okay, but who's to say that? Who's to say? So you're saying that? Well, so the Gemara actually points out it says that there's three times that Moshe made a decision on his own without consulting God, and that all three times the Almighty agreed, and this is one of them. So I think you're, you're saying a good point. That maybe the reason why this is so special, yeah, of course Moshe gave us the Torah and everything like that. Uh, he was a great prophet, but all that was done via God's in- intervention, so to speak. This is Moshe's own decision. I think that's a very valid point. That, that, that this is this is Moshe alone, and 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 not 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 with via consulting uh, with God. I think that's, that, that's an interesting. But still, come on. The, the, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, the most significant event in all human history, the greatest prophet, and all our religion all stems from Mount Sinai. So yes, this is at Mount Sinai forty days later. But this seems like it's a, it's 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 ancillary, you know. Uh, anecdote to the story that Moshe brought the tablets. You know, why is that highlighted? I think it's still a good question that, yes, it's own, his own decision, but is it so significant that it merits being placed, you know, as the parting thought that we have with Moshe? I think it's still a good question. I, I agree that you're, what you're saying is correct. Made all the people stand up and notice. So it was, it was the you know it was the drama. Maybe. I think they were probably shocked to see him do that. Yeah. Yeah, Written by the hand of God. Him with from not, God, yeah. and he just destroyed them. You know, showing showing the people. You know, it seems like he lost his temper, and that doesn't yeah, seem like that doesn't seem like a temperament for a leader. Well, who says he lost his anger? He lost his temper. Slamming tablets on the ground. Yeah, but using your temper Yeah, but we we don't find that he lost his temper here. It means he's complimented. Losing your temper is is one of the worst things you could do as a leader. I would argue. Yes, absolutely. But sometimes, um, like as a parent, I will feign raising my voice <coughs> to get attention, and maybe that's what he was. There's a calculated thing of making a dramatic scene so they would get their attention. To me, doing it in anger because you are justifiably angry at what's happening and the acting is one thing, but standing there without emotion in a way, cold-bloodedly saying, okay, now I'm going to show you, you know, okay, everybody pay attention. I'm an angry parent. I'm doing that. He's making a point. He's making a point. But, <laughs> but it's, it's, don't you think that splitting the sea was also making a point? Well, I don't think he did that. We said God did that. Okay, but Moshe is still the one who is performing it, even though it's, of course, it's the miracles done by the Almighty. But Moshe has significant achievements. You know, he has a lot of accolades. He also was frustrated whenever the issue with the water from the rock, and he said, must I get the water from the rock? Yeah, but still, extracting water from a rock is still a remarkable thing, right? Despite the fact that maybe... He's the one that did it. Okay, but okay. So this is the you know this is the point that Debbie said that, that this was Moshe himself. I, I think it's still a good question. I think it's still a question that this is the most dramatic thing that Moshe did in his life, 
It's a little bit surprising. Now, okay. I'd like to add one more thing, too. In order to achieve his level of prophecy means he had to refine himself to an incredible level in order to be the conduit for the miracles that God brought. So it wasn't like, like discount, he was just uh, well, God did, like, dumb pipes. Been a conduit to allow that to happen without That's the refinement right. he made in himself. That's right. So one of the commentaries actually says that when he came down and he saw the golden calf, his arms weakened and he dropped them. He didn't break them. Okay, fine. Did he drop them or so, did he break them? No, well, well, according to that commentary, his arms weakened and he dropped them. Oh, so it was a mouth. Well, no, it's... <laughs> 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 it's what, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, but I'm saying uh, this, uh, the Talmud, when I'm talking about clearly, it's, it's a conscious act, so I don't know okay. what you're referring to. Either way, I think that's a good question. Let's put that on the side. Um, let's go to the next episode about Moshe here. It's a very interesting verse in Exodus. Uh, it's in fact the first story about Moshe as an adult, as a mature person. We find the story about Moshe as a baby. He gets put on the box, and he gets found by the, you know, by the daughter of Pharaoh. And then we find as follows: It happened in those days that Moshe grew up, went out to his brethren, and saw their suffering. And he saw an Egyptian man hitting the Hebrew, one of his brothers. And of course, we know the postscript of the story. He got mad at the Egyptian. He killed him. He buried him. And then someone saw, and he had to escape. That's the story. And did Moses know he was Yes, yes, yes. Because remember, remember, even though he grew up in Pharaoh's home, he was actually raised by his own mother. Okay, okay. Miriam. Miriam's his sister. Yocheved is his mother. That's right. Um, That's right. So so he was actually raised by his own biological mother. So it seems like he, he, of course, he knew he was Jewish. Doesn't mean that he wasn't influenced by the fact you know, the environment that he actually was raised in. Okay. So um, this verse, if you read it critically, you'll notice that it's repeating something. It says like this. It happened in those days that Moshe grew up and went out to his brethren and saw their suffering, vayar b'sivlosam. And the next word is, and he saw, vayar ish mitzri, uh, he saw an Egyptian, Egyptian man hitting the Hebrew. So like within two words, it says, he saw and he saw. And the major asks question, what's he seeing? What's Moshe seeing? What's going on over here? What did he actually see? And why is he repeated? And it says as follows. So the major gives us two, under, two, two interpretations of what Moshe saw and what he did. Uh, so the first interpretation is as follows. What did he see? He saw their suffering. And what did he do? And he would weep. And he would say, woe is to me. If only I could die for you guys. For there's no more strenuous work than molding bricks. And he used to shoulder the burdens and help each one of them first explanation of the Midrash is that what Moshe did, he saw people, you know, slaves, thousands upon thousands of slaves, being tortured, being uh, mistreated, having to do back-breaking labor, and he saw their suffering. And what did he try to do? He tried to help them. So he would go and see a guy schlepping bricks, and he would go help him schlep. And he'd see another guy going bricks and help him schlep. Let me ask you a question. Let's say you see 600,000 men suffering. And you say, I'm going to help him. What's the best way to help him? To go say, okay, schlep, help, schlep, this guy schlep. Okay, once, I move, once I'm done with that, 10 minutes later, go help another guy schlep. And how many people could you actually help? Yeah. Huh? Not enough to make a difference. Could you really make a difference? No. Helping one, helping another? More. Okay, maybe you help some the people that you help. You, you help the people that you help. Yeah, of course, they have it easier. Someone help them schlep. But not as a whole. Yeah, but you're, it's a drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. What's Moshe doing? It seems like if, if, if we were there 
and we were surveying the situation. Okay, how do we fix the situation? It's just what we want here, right? People are being mistreated. There's nothing more strenuous work than what they're doing. Let's try to help them. Hmm, actually, oh, I see a guy there. Let me go help that guy. Let me go help that guy. He's not really changing anything. That's the way you change the situation. You try to change it in its entirety. What's the Torah highlighting the fact that Moshe would go help one and help another? Maybe that his own ideas weren't really formed yet. He was just was beginning to develop a social conscience. Social conscience? <laughs> go so ahead. I think he had a social conscience. Yeah, <clears throat> But he was just beginning to it. He hadn't come yeah. to the overall, okay, we're going to take them out of slavery. You know, the big picture. He was just sort of working his way up in baby steps. So it's interesting. We, this is not Moshe yet, the leader, taking them out of slavery. This is Moshe, the character being developed, correct? Mm-hmm. And what does it say? Like, what quality do we see in Moshe? He's, yeah, it's maybe kindness to that one guy or kindness to the yeah, other guy. How about uh, but yeah. well, in... in, in in, in, the mid, in the Mishnah, we have this idea called Nose Ba'olam Chavero. Bearing a yoke with one's fellow, which means if you see someone else suffering, you say, I cannot be okay with him suffering and me not suffering. Moshe indeed didn't help anyone. Maybe he helped one guy, two guys, three guys, five guys, ten guys, a hundred guys, but he didn't really change anything. But Moshe now is saying like this I'm here, I'm not forced to work, but I see my brethren working. I don't want to be the only one not in pain. It's about identifying with others. It's about saying, if they're suffering, I want to be suffering too. And indeed, he's not affecting change. Of course not. But the first thing you find about Moshe is that he says, if someone else is suffering, I too want to be suffering. I'm identifying with other people. That's the first Midrash. What's the second Midrash here? Listen to this, guys. Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Yossi from the Galilee, said, what did he see? Remember what Moshe saw and he saw. What did he see? He saw a large load on a light person. He saw a light load on a large person. He saw a load intended for a man on a woman and a load intended for a woman on a man. He saw a load intended for an elderly person on a young person and a load intended for a young person on an elderly person. Hmm. Moshe saw different kinds of suffering. It wasn't just like, oh, I see terrible suffering, human pain. He saw six, at least six different kinds of suffering. He saw the nuances and the subtleties of each individual suffering. Once again, Moshe is identifying with the people that are suffering. So what did he do? Moshe abandoned his stature. Moshe was a prince after all, right? He doesn't need to deal with the lowly slaves. He didn't say, you know, he didn't say, I don't know, that's not me. You know, these are the lower class. He abandoned his stature and went to alleviate the suffering under the guise of helping Pharaoh. So he went to Pharaoh and says, listen, this is not optimal. Let's optimize it. Let's try to give everyone the, the low that's intended for them. So what does the Almighty say? This is the concluding line of the Midrash. The Almighty says, you set aside your dealings and went to witness the plight of Israel and treated them like brothers, I, the Almighty, will set aside the lofty matters and talk to you. It seems like this story, this episode, is the reason why Moshe was chosen to be the leader. He could have said, I am, I'm, I'm higher than these people. And he set aside his dealings and talked to the, and, you know, and, and alleviated the suffering and engaged with the people that were below him, so to speak. 
God says, I too will abandon those high things and talk to you. What's the theme here? What did Moshe see? What's the first quality that we find about Moshe? He notices the suffering. He sees. But there's, there's seeing and there's really understanding what someone else is going through. You could see someone suffering, but not actually get into the nitty-gritty. Why is this person suffering? Well, this is a, lo- a small person carrying a heavy load. Like That's a personalized suffering. You know, Moshe was able to experience the pain of others. And he brought it on to himself. He said, I want to carry a load with other people. I want to experience the pain of others. Now, what quality do we find in Moshe? We find the idea of selflessness. Right? Most of us, we start off life being, being selfish. Right? We feel our pain. We don't feel our fellow's pain. Right? We feel our pain as a baby. We don't feel our mom's pain right? as babies. As children, when we when we don't have the snack to someone else, you know, we, we feel the pain. But someone else on the side, we don't feel the pain because we're selfish. And the the band that spans from being selfish to selfless, that's the band of greatness and leadership. And Moshe is someone who says, "I am deliberately going to feel other people's pain," and therefore he was able to notice the different, distinct subtleties of the pain of each individual. He identified with others. He was entirely selfless. Another question. Go ahead. Uh, another, another area of Torah, one of the things it talks about is serving the Almighty with the, and being joyful. So how do you uh, reconcile being joyful but noticing, feeling the pain of everyone that's out there? Like be depressing. Why? that all the time. Because you'd be focusing on... I mean, how, how do you reconcile that? Well, when there's there's a there's if there's a mitzvah to be uh, to suffer with others, you can do that mitzvah joyfully. It means you're doing the mitzvah out of joy, even though the mitzvah entails pain. Okay. Right? When do you, do you like going to the gym? Yeah. Isn't it strenuous? Yeah. How do you reconcile that? Well, because you like doing what you're doing. No pain, no gain. You, since you like, you like the pain, right? Because right. you, you know that this is growth. This is development. Okay. That's what you're saying. Yeah, it makes sense, right? I, I enjoy helping out. Right, but you, you enjoy the pain of, uh, of the post-workout, you know, muscle aches. But that's possible yeah. Yeah, but Moshe is also development. This is the development. This is the growth of Moshe. The growth of Moshe is becoming, identifying with other people. Why can that not be joyful? Yeah, he's saying, yeah, you can find, you can, you can. So you're having it's um, a mitzvah. an experience in the process. Yeah, and if I, I would say that that's very exceedingly meaningful. Yeah, it, it's, 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 sometimes pain is meaningful. And to, to, to identify with someone else is inorm- inordinately uh, meaningful. Yeah, but of course, it, that involves pain, because if you, if you really identify with someone who's, in, who's suffering, you feel pain. So in reality, we've ruined our leadership, because we don't have them anywhere near 
those who are suffering. You know, I mean, they're so removed. They're so they're so far removed. They're so highly paid that they can't see or feel the pain of others. But they meet pain. Most most people don't go through pain. They don't have no clue what pain is. Well, true. Think about it. Yeah. I don't agree with you. I uh. Most everyone goes through pain. Not like some of us who, when you don't even have no clue. But you're That's talking about a different kind of pain. You're talking about <laughs> a different kind of pain, <laughs> which can yeah. be just as bad yeah. as physical yeah. pain. Yeah. Absolutely, the emotional stress. Yeah. Try living in poverty. Yeah. It is very. I did. I've been there, man. Exactly. <laughs> I've been there more than you. Well, <laughs> emotional poverty and physical poverty. Been there too. <laughs> understand, and they are fundamentally different animals. Right. But the body records it right. as the same. But you see now, because of it, I'm a different person. I'm joyful. I'm helping. I'm doing things that he calls me to do. Absolutely. But that's you. Someone else could interpret it totally different. That's exactly right. Become bitter and self centered. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if the people, I'm, I'm not an expert on the Holocaust, but there are people who came out of the Holocaust who survived. We're talking about survivors, obviously, who be, stayed very religious, and others who just denied the religion. They both went, get me wrong. each oh, group yeah. went through the same experience, but the diff, yeah. you know, they came out with a different experience. You can say the same control. thing about people here in the United States that went through the Great Depression. Yeah. Yeah. No. They are forever changed by the experience. You know, it's it's a like big the, deal. Uh, post-traumatic stress. Who gets it and who doesn't? But the question is like this. Is it possible for someone who doesn't physically feel that pain but experiences the same thing that someone else is going through because they identify so totally with them? Absolutely. You know, I think I like as, as a parent, we kind of have an insight as what that is like. If you see your child suffering... You feel the pain, but wait, you're not feeling the pain. Because as parents, we naturally identify with our children. Sure. We feel that they're a part of us. Yeah. So they suffer, it's, it hurts us. Well, what about some stranger? Well, if we're a leader, the leader is someone who's able to encompass that same feeling that they have with their own family and their own self to more and more people. Moshe was able to feel the pain of each individual person there that was suffering. All the 600,000 slaves, their pain, he felt it all. He identified, I mean, it's interesting, in, in, in um, Jewish literature, the term that's used for a great person is a large person, which seems a little bit weird, right? Bizarre, right? What it means is, is that what is your person? Your person is where your pain, where your sensitivity is, where your identity ends. So a little child is little because if something hurts them, their body, they have pain. If someone hurts anything else, they don't have pain. Slowly, as they grow, they begin to identify with their siblings, with their parents, with their classmates, with the people from their town, etc., etc. They grow, right? And the greatest person is someone whose identity encompasses the most people. It means you had people that, like, like Moshe. If some Jew felt pain, Moshe felt it himself. He felt it. He identified with others. He was selfless because his self contained more than just him. It contained everyone. Like the old Jews responsible for all the Jews. That's the concept. Yeah. Which is trying to spur us to feel like that. Yes. By the way, um, is that where the concept, do you think, possibly was developed in us from uh, Moses' 
his leadership? Well, I, 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 no, I, I would say it is greatness. Um, Moshe demonstrated it more than anyone else. Uh, that's why he was the greatest. Um, but to so the degree that everyone... David never felt the same, well, I, the same feelings toward his people as Moses. I would say that he for sure did, not quite as great as Moshe. But like, you know, the, the mitzvah of love your fellow as yourself, what's that essentially saying? Identify with others. It's a mitzvah in the Torah. That's not, you know, that's not Moshe's contribution, right? That's, that's the mitzvah. And the mitzvah is become a great person. Because there's no other way to do it. There's no other way to love others as much as you love yourself without identifying with others, expanding your identity to incorporate their others. So I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think the Midrash is also helping us with a starting point. Like, how do you start? Like, if I want to identify with other people, how do I start? The first thing is it's, it's with the vision. You see. And when you see, don't you know, there's, you know, there's seeing on the surface and then there's really understanding, really seeing, right? Having the vision that the great visionaries have because they actually notice what someone's going through, you know? And, and, and that attitude of trying to really understand what everyone else is going through, that breaks us out of our little cocoon that we start off life with. In. We start off life being totally insular, focusing on ourselves only. Our life ends where our shirts end. And comes along greatness and says, force us to look at other people and see what they're going through, thus expanding and breaking out of the limitations that we start off life with. We understand, we feel it. Absolutely. We suffer. That's right. Now, I, I had some interesting, like an interesting little observation. Like uh, Moshe's first encounter with prophecy. So the burning bush was mentioned. Uh, so he has a burning bush. What does God tell? First thing God tells him. Take off your shoes. Take off your shoes. So I had a little uh, acute thought. Like, what does it mean, you know, we would say the, to walk a mile in someone else's shoes? How would that feel, by the way? I don't try other, wearing other people's shoes. Like, the shoes kind of mold around your feet, and it feels kind of odd wearing someone else's. Even if it's the same size, it like, feels weird, right? Because, you know... It's been molded today. It's been molded, exactly. And, and I, w- I would make the argument that the idea, the comfort that we have with our own shoes kind of mirrors the idea of the comfort we have with our own experiences. And God tells Moshe, I want you to take off your shoes. You should realize that the reason why you were chosen for greatness is because you lived in other people's shoes. You weren't wearing your own shoes. That's the secret. Why am I giving this prophecy to you? This is why I'm abandoning the higher lofty realms and I'm talking to you. What's Moshe's greatest quality? Humility. Humility. What is humility? Humility is about being selfless. If, if I'm nothing, well, how do I get to be me being nothing? I start off life, and a child starts off life as me being everything. The most arrogant people on the planet are little babies. Sorry there for mothers and grandparents. <laughs> That's what they are. That's what they are because all they care about is themselves. They're also um, born perfect. I just have to throw that out. Uh, excuse me? <laughs> perfect in, in which way? Like It's a perfect starting point for life. But they have terrible qualities. Like, if we were to just look at the character... Did you ever hear the term, a big baby? <coughs> Typically men. Excuse me. <laughs> Those are adults, not 
Yeah, but if you were to just catalog the qualities, the character of a small child, and then you would just put them, like list them, like what is, like Pure you know. No, but you would say the, the child's arrogant, the child's selfish, the child's obstinate, the child's whiny, the child, right? The child doesn't care about others. If you just made the list of the characteristics of, of children, you would say, and, and you know, and you, you took you, you took off the, the age, you know, you, you just made a made a catalog of the quality. He's like, well, this is the this is the worst person on the planet. I totally disagree. <laughs> so how can kids not medicated not? He has not watch kids on the playground. Those kids can come from every walk of life and find a commonality and play together. And also fight mm-hmm. with someone they've just met oh, and yes. punch them in the face. Yeah. 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 Imagine I told you, like, there is a, there is a person who punches their people they just met in their face. You say, whoa, what is wrong with that person? Well, you've seen kids spar. It's normal. It's natural. What about this? I tell you, I'll tell you of a person who is thirsty in the middle of the night and screams and screams and screams until someone delivers them something right? to drink. <laughs> exactly. That's, only because that's every child. That's every child. Even day one. I'm not arguing with that. I'm not trying to change that. I'm just saying that that's the way they start a fly. I once told my daughter when the baby was little the baby would be perfectly happy as long as he gets everything he wants the minute he wants it. Exactly. <laughs> You know, so that is not necessarily sterling character. It's not, and but that's that's why we start off life imperfect, and we're trying to perfect that. Um, but humility is where someone disassociates from that kind of selfish attitude. When they become selfless, that is what humility is. I'm not. Moses says I'm nothing. Why I'm nothing? Because I'm everyone else. I'm not me. I'm everyone else. Identifying with others. May I ask a story? Go that, ahead. You know, we're talking about the bricks and stuff. Yes. You know, we always learned that the Jews built the pyramids, but they did not. Well, who said who said we always learned that? I learned it. If you look at pictures of the in the in the Jewish books that you had in the history of Jews, you'd see these. I don't believe there's any source for that, so I don't know Maybe why. Maybe there's no source, but I would I would say I mean that's the way I learned. The right. Jews built the pyramids, but they didn't. Maybe in like public school we learned that you know public you school. Well, yeah, but I, apparently, I apparently we used it. Apparently was no. I, I'm yeah, saying Exodus when we used to learn about. Passover. Okay, but why are you saying no? No, they didn't. Why? Well, that's the history. I thought, I, thought that, they didn't. I thought they built it to store grain. Uh, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Who's that, Carson? Yeah, but, but that, that would be a couple hundred years earlier with Joseph. Yes, yes. Listen, I, I, we don't know what exactly they built because it say in the Torah. Um, if there was a source that says that they built the... Um, you know, if there was a source in, in somewhere in the Talmud or in the Midrash that they built the pyramids, that would be different. But I don't, I don't believe there is. Um, so maybe the pyramids preceded it. So, so what? It doesn't mean that they weren't enslaved. The Egyptians built those pyramids it's by conscripting the population for periods of time. So if the Jews were living there at that time... The no, but the thing is, they, 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 it, it seems the likely that they were built a couple hundred years prior. And if you see the move, the movies that were made about Exodus and stuff, so you had the Jews. Oh, those are always known for their accuracy, right? Yeah, no, no, but, 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 but that's what you remember. That's what depicted the population of viewers. Now, what happens? I don't believe it unless it's a reality show. Because <laughs> that's real. Or the, the internet, unless it's on the internet, I don't believe it. <laughs> so, um, now the pyramids have snow on them for the first time in 112 years. Oh, really? 
Do we believe it? Oh, it's on Facebook? Oh, it's on Facebook. That's why it's on Facebook. Anything on Facebook. Yeah. leadership. Yeah, so well, what happens What happens when Moshe is informed by God that he's going to be the leader that's going to take the Jewish people out? What's his response? No. He doesn't want to do it. Can you imagine a leader today saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm giving you the grand, the Godfather offer. You know, you are going to be the leader, uh, the most impactful leader in all of human history. Mm-hmm. You want it or not? So we would think that every leader would want it. And Moshe is the leader, so he doesn't want it. And there's a seven-day debate. God says, you take it. And Moshe, God is angry with Moshe that he refuses to take it. But I think that that too demonstrates that it, to him, he was living for other people. To him, the idea of him being a leader was so foreign. Like, why would I be chosen to be the leader? Like, when he's able to experience what everyone else is experiencing. Interesting. So that's Moshe. So let's talk about Abraham. So I'll mention Abraham as a great leader. Yeah, yeah, yes. The, the, well, we have the details of, of, the, of, their, of their dialogue. It's brought down in the Midrash, that's right. Um, what happened with Moses, with, with Abraham? So we're talking about Moses and a little bit of the qualities that Moses demonstrates. Abraham, in a verse in Genesis, we know that Abraham at the age of 99 gets circumcision. And three days later... He's suffering, right? Because three days after the circumcision, apparently, is the most painful time. And by the way, I had a friend from South Africa who was a convert. And he was a convert that never had a circumcision. At the age of 35, he got a circumcision. And he confirmed. Day three. What? <laughs> he was 71. He okay, well. I'm not, but Tell me a, what happened on the third day after your circumcision. Oh, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> so apparently uh, he... he Look at his face. <laughs> he confirmed day three. That was the worst. That was the most painful. So, he, so what does he do? He's outside and it's really hot. And he's waiting for, for, for guests. Why? Because that's what Abraham does. And what happens? The Almighty comes to visit him. And he has, and he has prophecy. And then when he has prophecy, right after he has prophecy, he sees the corner of his eyes and sees three pagans. And says to God, I'm shoulder smear. Wait one second, right? I'm going to tend to them. Don't leave. So what does the verse say? He lifted his eyes and saw. And behold, three men were standing over him. He saw. Vayar, and ran towards something that's just the ten bounds of the ground. It's very interesting that the same peculiarity we find with Moshe, that in one verse it says Vayar twice, in Exodus, we find with Abraham in Genesis, the same thing. It says he saw and he saw. What's he seeing? So it actually tells us like this. Why does the Torah repeat he saw Vayar twice? The first, as it is plainly understood, he saw. And the second, he understood. So first, he saw that he, he understood. He saw that they were congregated in one spot, and understood that they didn't want to disturb him, and he preempted them and ran towards them. You know, sometimes you see people kind of uneasy, uncertain what to do. It means that is a product of a of a deeper vision of understanding. So yeah, he saw people, but you see people congregated. You don't you don't think necessarily anything of it. But when he saw the vision of Abraham, is that he really understood what they are going through. That's a higher level of, underst- of understanding. And he ran towards them to try to preempt them. What does that show? I, I think it's, it's probably not a surprise that the two greatest leaders in the Torah, and, and uh, arguably of 
all of Jewish history, we find the same theme, that they were people that were able to experience life from the perspective of other people. Right? They saw as if they were experiencing through the lens of someone else. They, they understood what someone else was going through. They understood what other people were thinking. They felt what other people were thinking. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence. Perhaps we can say that Jewish leadership is about being selfless. It's about experiencing what other people are experiencing, seeing the world from other people's perspective. Being empathetic, right? Feeling what other people are feeling. What's the ultimate act of selflessness in Moshe's life? What's the act where he rejected his own personal standing, his own personal greatness and achievement for the benefit of others? Arguably, that would be breaking the tablets. What happened to Moshe? What did he do? He goes up to the heaven, right? He experiences prophecy alongside the Jewish people. The Jewish people all hear that Moshe is beckoned up to the mountain. He disappears up to the mountain. He's gone. Later on, he tells us, as you know, we know, but he actually connects the dots for us. Two times he tells us that he didn't eat or drink for 40 days. I don't know how he did that. Remarkable. He goes, and the Talmud tells us that he's negotiating with angels. Imagine some negotiating. He comes down with a spiritual representation of Torah to the physical world. He has these tablets that are written by God and, and they're, it's miraculous because you can read the same thing from both sides. That, shouldn't, that doesn't work. And the letters are, are, are floating in the air. And to, you know, if, 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 what would be Moshe, Moshe's Hall of Fame ceremony or in, in his, in his uh, library of Moshe's greatest... Like what would be the center... Uh, um, exhibition. Wouldn't it be that Moshe brings these godly tablets to the world? Like, look what Moshe brought us. Moshe gave us Torah. And what does he see? He sees the people. He understands what's going on. He knows what the ramifications are of what they're going to do. And he knows that if they have the Torah suddenly, and they're expected to behave on a much higher level, yet they're behaving at such a lowly level, that cannot coexist. The Jewish people cannot have both the heavenly tablets and the way of life and their behavior. So what does he think? Well, he's presented with a tremendous conflict. Do I walk away from all the glory? Do I abandon what could have been my, the greatest legacy in all of human history and save the people or not? The ultimate question of selfishness versus selflessness. And Moshe decides, I'm going to destroy the tablets. It's an act of great leadership. That's the ultimate act of self-sacrifice. That's the ultimate act of walking away from the great... And the argument could have been fatalic. God gave you tablets, you're going to break them? And someone mentioned, we mentioned here that this is Moshe's own decision. Could you imagine, like, making this decision today? Like, you know, like, it, imagine a team gives you, like, a trophy. And then you're going to go and smash it to pieces? Can you imagine these? Wouldn't that be chutzpah? The Almighty gives you the tablets and you're going to break them? Maybe they weren't real tablets. Well, they were. I didn't say that. I said maybe they weren't. Maybe it was really uh, like a hologram. Maybe it is a spiritual <coughs> rather than a 
Well, it, yeah, there is spiritual nature to it, you know, but it, it seems like it was made out of stone. What kind of stone? We don't know. It was well, precious it stone. That we, you can read from both sides, and letters that are flying in the air do not suggest physicality. Yeah, unless it's this this blend, right? It's 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 this touch point where it's it's two worlds are meeting. It's a physical representation of spirituality, which is essentially what the Mount Sinai experience was, right? Where the the mountains on fire and the people are seeing words and and the human. Well, it's it's they're seeing it with their physical eyes, but they're seeing spiritual things. So yeah, it, it's this meaning of two worlds. But Moshe decides to destroy the tablets. And yes, in retrospect, we all say, "Oh, of course, we would have done the same." I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Oh yeah, of course. Occasionally, and they probably had some kind of reaction. I don't know what it says versus those that were throwing in their rings and making the statue. So he does it for the sake, not for. I guess to the benefit of all the people who were doing wrong, and those good people, whatever number of those people were, had to suffer as a result. Okay, but that, I'm saying that this is a good question, maybe for a different discussion of, of why we have the. In, in this particular instance, we have how many people worshiping the golden calf? You Three thousand, right? It's a point five percent, very small. Yet the entire nation is imperiled, and God's going to destroy everyone. We'll start from scratch. So that's a good question. We see this again and again. It's a common theme that the few impact the many. The question is why. It's a good question. But either way, what's the after? What's the aftermath of this story? God tells him, "Okay, we're done with the people. That's it. It's over. It's over. We kill them all. We'll start from you. We'll start with you. You'll be the father of the new nation." And fantastic. What does Moshe respond? He says, "If you have a chair that can't uh, stand on three legs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." You're going to have it stand on one leg, just Moses? And Moshe starts this monumental prayer effort to negotiate with God. And it's it's unending prayer. We end the, you read the Yom Kippur prayer service, it's all, we're, all, we're, we're channeling Moses' prayer once again. And Moshe says, if you're going to destroy the people, destroy me too. I'm going down with them. Erase me from your book. Selflessness. Again and again, we see that with Moshe. The Jews go down, I go with them. Identifying with the people. That's Moshe's greatest quality. And by the way, there's more stories of this. We know the story of, of Moshe and the, um, and the daughters of Jethro, of Yisro. Right? He identifies with their suffering. Right? There's a story with Moshe and, uh, and a random sheep. Random little sheep runs away, and how he identifies with the pain of even the sheep. We have Moshe looking for a successor. What, 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 what do you look for? Moshe realizes he's about to die, and he says, "He says to the Almighty, he says, oh, let's find a successor.' Right? What's he looking for? So Rashi, Rashi highlights. This informs us the praise of the righteous when when they're about to die." They, uh, they set aside their personal matters and occupy themselves with the needs of the community. Like, well, when someone's, like someone's about to get old, right, they say, okay, fine, now let's look in your will. 
you know, set up your, what's it called, plan your funeral arrangements, right? What's Moshe? Moshe's about to die, and he's like, he's worried about the people. An example, right? That's some point of leader. What kind of leader do we want for the people? So what, what does Moshe tell the Almighty? May Hashem, God of all living souls, appoint a man over the community. Why does it say God of all living souls? Says Rashi. Moshe said to God, you're the God of all living souls. The personality of each individual is known before you. And they're all different. Appoint for them a leader who will be able to bear each individual according to his personality. Moshe is saying, I want a leader like me. Moshe realized the quality of leadership. You, the Almighty, you know every quirk, every, every nuance of every individual. The leader has to be someone who's so malleable, who's able to understand the suffering of each individual on his level. That's what he's looking for. And God says, I have the right guys, Joshua. But I, I think that, that we, we need to go no further than this particular story to find, um, uh, to find proof and evidence that this is indeed what we are looking for in great leaders. And you'll say to me, Rabbi, okay, I'm not the, I'm not the guy. <laughs> Why is this relevant to us? You know, I, I don't think, uh, was anyone here contacted by the Yellow Design to uh, maybe throw their name in the hat? I wasn't, certainly. <laughs> so why is this relevant? If we're not going to be the leaders of the people, why is it relevant? So the truth is, you'll say, okay, fine, you'll, maybe you'll be the leader of the synagogue or leader of the family or your community or you're running the sisterhood or something like that. But I want to I make the argument that this quality of selflessness, like we said earlier, it's really the quality of Jewish greatness. But not only that, if you don't have it, you cannot have anything spiritually, and even things that are not spiritual at all ostensibly, you can't have them either. How so? So first of all, let's start with the most uh, debatable of my arguments. And that is that as Jews, we have, we, we're all leaders. What does it mean to be chosen people? What does it mean? It means we're chosen to be the leaders. We're chosen to be the ones that are going to influence the world. As a Jew, my responsibility is to lead or to assist in the national mission of leading the world to Tikkun Olam. i got to be a leader. It's an arguable point. Okay, fine. Well, you know, what about in reality? So I think in interpersonal relationships, this is critical. In marriage, you cannot have it. A uh, good marriage that is without this. And what's the difference, by the way, well, let's just use it as a, a modern-day example. I thought about this, about this over the weekend. I was once um, by my, my uncle, a very uh, prestigious Torah scholar in, in New York, um, and he, he was making a coffee. And he asked his wife, do you wish I make your coffee as well? Which is a very nice thing to do, no? And he said to me, that's not kindness. Why not? No, but more than that, it's a, deep, it's, a deep, it's a deep insight here. He's like, that's not kindness. Why? Because I want a coffee for myself. He was already making it for himself. Right, so therefore only then do we get awakened, okay, who else needs a drink, right? That's a still an example of self, a selfishness. I mean, yes, it's still much better than the alternative. It's still kindness, I would say. But the ultimate is to actually know what someone else needs when you don't need that at all. So you're not aroused, I mean, you're not aroused from your own personal experiences, just from what someone else needs and someone else feels, that compels you to, uh, to go try to find a solution. Yeah, like, Mom, you, 
you look like you need a good, I don't know, say she likes cocoa or something. It looks like you need a drink now. You just look tired and haggard, you know. I'll go make you a drink. <laughs> okay. yeah. At the same time, she has a bad no, Margarita would be happy. I realized you didn't have water. But it's, yeah. it's hard to train yourself to start thinking what other people Before. need when you don't need that. That's right. right. So, do you have any ideas to enjoy? Let's talk about marriage. So, first of all, what do we have? The first episode we have in the Torah of, of spouse selection. Right. Eliezer. The servant of Abraham. He's going to find a spouse for Isaac. He goes to the well and he starts praying. And he says, the girl that's the right girl for for Isaac, I'm going to ask her for water. And she's going to say, ah, I'm not going to give you water. I'm going to give your, cal- your camels water as well. Or just if you want the water for the camels, ask water for the camels. What's he looking for? He's looking for not kindness, yeah, but this deeper insight of kindness, of noticing that that they weren't informed about. Of going beyond, of, of noticing what someone else actually needs, not just what you're being presented for. I, if someone is selfish, let's assume someone's selfish, right? very selfish, and you say, excuse me, could you give me a cup of water? Most people would say yes. That's, that's derech eretz, as we say in, 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 in Jewish uh, terminology. That's derech eretz. Someone's asked for water, you give them water. But to notice what someone else needs without being asked, that demands selflessness. That demands this quality of noticing what other people are going through without being informed about it. That's what we're looking for in a spouse for Isaac. And I would make the argument that it's not just Rebecca. It's not like, oh, yeah, you know, it's not, that's what we need for Rebecca. That's what we need for every spouse. The key of marriage and success in marriage is to care for others, right? to care for someone as much as you care for yourself, to experience life together, to create a new identity to abandon that selfishness where all you care about is yourself and develop a new identity where it's an inclusive identity where you are more than just you, the individual. You are now a collective unit. You're bigger. You're, you're expanding your borders. And all too frequently, I want to make the argument here, that uh, little rant may be forthcoming. All too frequently, marriage is like, it's a very... Uh, it's just a very effective way to have your own needs fulfilled. So that's, that's not the way marriage ought to be. I mean, it, it, it's possible that both spouses are in for selfish motives. <clears throat> what happens when both spouses are in for selfish motives? What happens to such a marriage? Let's, let's, so yes, you, 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 know, you want to marry someone for only for selfish reasons. You can't do that. Okay, first of all, you'll have someone, uh, you'll be able to be married finally jointly. Save some money in taxes. Number one. Number two, you find someone to maybe have kids. You want to have kids, right? Number three, you find someone to fulfill your 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 needs, your uh, you know your your physical needs, right? Someone maybe will help you clean up the house, or you know, uh, someone who you could uh, you know you, re- you you know you someone who you could spend some time with, which is nice. You don't want to be all alone. Those are all selfish, 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 and both it could be on both sides. And and then what what happens to such a marriage? Once those needs are not being met, or once those needs can be met with someone else better, you find a new replacement, right? Because that's the logical thing to do when you're in it for yourself. It's very logical. It's like when you're investing in a stock, right? Why are you doing that? For, for selfish reasons. 
So when there's a stock that you think could give you a better output, what do you do? You sell this one. And you buy the other one. And that's, no one decries that, right? Because everyone agrees that investing is about selfish, you know, selfish needs, right? You want to make as much money as you can. Correct? That's, right? But if you go into marriage the same way, then it's very logical to follow the same process. Okay, if your wife is now outdated, there's the, the uh, a, a homily, uh, uh, you know, 22-year-old that could do it much, much better. Yeah, but there's a huge surrender charge. Okay. <laughs> okay, so that's what you have to, you have, you have to calculate that. So society has made it more difficult. But why does, why does society need to do that? I means why... Our society has, you know, has developed uh, methods to try to avoid that kind of conclusion. But imagine how much more divorces we would have if it was easy to get divorced, no big deal, like selling the stock, right? Right. Why? Because people are still... Without the... uh, You're over the 50% mark. Yeah, 50% for first marriages, 67% for second marriages, and 74% for third marriages. My understanding, though, that's faulty statistics. Based not on the number of existing marriages, but based on the number of people who actually marry every year. In a given year. Yeah. Right, so because we, because really that that's, way. well, I think, it, I think actually it will be even worse. Because yeah. if there's an accelerated divorce, then the marriages that happened prior are less likely to result in divorce. Thus, if there's more divorces today, then there are, or, or there's 67% divorces for 100% marriages, then that's like, that number's likely to increase. So it may not be accurate, but it might actually be even worse. Maybe yes, maybe no. Either way. So you're saying the, idea, the purpose of marriage is that the husband puts his wife's needs, that's all he concerns about, she puts his needs, and it's two people. Well, it's, it's the, you know, that, that's what marriage, that's how it's described in the Torah. Yeah. And it's a, we have a verse in Genesis. What does the verse say? The verse says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the Torah's view of marriage. Abandon your father and mother. What does that mean? It means to say goodbye. I'm not, we'll talk in 20 years. For some people it is like that, right? Because their spouse can't stand their parents. But that's not what it means. It means to abandon your identity. That's where you started off your life with your father and mother, right? You've got to abandon that. You've got to break the cocoon. I have to be- cleave to your wife and create new I- one new identity. What happens when your leg hurts? Do you amputate it? Why not? Because it's your leg. What happens if your wife gets you upset? Do you amputate it? No, it's it's your wife. It's it's like your leg. It's part, you know that's what it's like, and that's the attitude. <clears throat> and and but we have to understand that if a marriage is taken for selfish reasons or. I don't want to say that. If a marriage is, you know, if the attitude of the couple has a marriage is all about selfishness, it's only logical to look for a, to look for an upgrade. It's, it, it makes a lot of sense what people do. If you're in it for, it means if your attitude is all about being selfish, that's what is appropriate for you to do when you find the replacement. It's like, you know, when you get a new phone, like, why are you going to, what's wrong with your old phone? It still works, right? Yeah, but there's new features in the new ones, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but there's, why, why? Maybe I should do something with my hair then now that you said it. <laughs> no, but why, why is, why is our society, why is our society, <laughs> no, but our society, is nothing wrong with people getting a new phone every six months, every year. Right? Yeah. 
separate cause. We understand that that's selfish. But our society collectively understands is that marriage ought not work the same way. Because it's about developing who you are, expanding who you are. Just like you've said, let's see your kids get you mad. You scrap them and get new kids. Tempting. Tempting. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we never really consider that. Why don't we ever consider that? Because we innately feel our connection, our, our identity with our kids. Marriage is about creating that same feeling towards one's spouse as, they, as, as naturally uh, we have with our own children. That's what it's about. So, so yes, your kids may get you upset, but they're still your kids. You might want to smack him and beat him up. You might want to. Not encouraging that. But you might want to do that. But no matter how bad they are, they're still your children. Right? With our spouse, we have to develop. That's what marriage is about. It's about devel- developing that attitude towards your spouse. I had a, a student of mine who called me distraught. She's j- just gotten married a couple of months prior. And she said that her new husband, who's also a, who they met uh, in a torch uh, setting, uh, and they, um, she's upset because he promised her before they got married that after they got married, they'll be able, she'll be able to, she'll be able to have a cat. I'm not telling the story. Okay, great. So you know the story. Uh, no. Okay, so I'll tell the story again. Yeah, a few of us missed it. Sorry. Yeah, we want to let loose, man. Right. So, and to her, the thought of living life without a cat is absolutely devastating. And she's like, I don't know if I can stay married to him. So what does this tell me? I'm not trying to, I don't know what happened before the marriage. I don't know what, like, you know, he decides, she's like, now he decides he doesn't like cats, but he told me before, and of course I love cats, no problem, happy man, cats, you know. So to me, like, this is an example, I think, I'm saying, I hope it, it would change, but to me, this is like okay. He's in it for selfish reasons. She's in it for selfish reasons. So to her, to him, it's like she wants a cat, but I don't want a cat, so no cat. And to her, she's like, I, I want a cat. He doesn't want a cat. Yes, cat. <laughs> What's the solution though? If she says I put his needs first, he doesn't want a cat, and he says I'm gonna put her needs first, and she does want a cat. That's the word compromise. You give one Happy thing cat. for the other thing. Whatever else he wants. And keep and keep a tally, huh? Yeah. No, you don't have to keep a tally, but at least, well... Cool. Well, what happened last time? I mean, someone's got to keep score, right? Yeah, <laughs> of course. his sincerity, because before they were married, oh, yeah, he was absolutely. trying to rule So her. you're saying they should get divorced over this cat? No. no. Like my, <laughs> what I'm saying is like this. Not married to begin with. My, what I'm saying is like this. I want to hear from her his perspective. Yeah. I want to hear from him her perspective. Let that be part of the dialogue. Let should be part of the conversation. That's all I'm asking for. But obviously, I mean, you know, marriage, you know, I'm married this, this week, it'll be 49 years. Wow. Marriage, you're always compromised. Of course. Mm-hmm. The women, the woman always wins, you know, and she always says that you win. <laughs> That's what happens. Where, where is, no, she, where's is Janet? <laughs> We need a rebuttal. Right <laughs> well, I have to go pick up no problem. No problem. There's no question. That, uh, okay, so I want to make the argument. The I want to make the argument that we, if we don't learn to be selfless, we'll have a really hard time having meaningful, harmonious, happy relationships. That's number one. We need to be leaders, if only to have great marriages. Number two, we cannot have faith of any sort unless we have the same quality of selflessness. How so? So we find in the Talmud, no problem, we find the Talmud that Talmud says if someone has kindness, 
they're certainly going to have fear of heaven. What does kind of have to do with fear in heaven? Number one. Number two, we find about Abraham, we know Abraham's most significant contribution has been monotheism. Correct? Yeah, when you open the Torah, it's all about Abraham the kindness. Abraham the paragon of kindness. Why is Abraham presented in a way that what we would say is maybe not his greatest achievement? His achievement ought to be. It means we should find descriptions of him debating and polemics and his discovery. We don't find Abraham the theologian in the Torah. We find Abraham the kind person in the Torah. There's something to do about uh, monotheism is that God is one. Okay. And therefore we are sort of one. Okay, but say that in, in terms that, that, that actually makes, you know... Yeah, I, 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 I think you might be right. I, I don't have fully formulated that. Yes, yeah, so it's a kind of hard thing to formulate. Yeah. So, my grandfather, the way he explained it, he said like this, says, imagine someone grows up living in a sealed room. I may have given this example before, so if you've heard it, pardon my repetition of it. You grow up in a sealed room. There's no windows, no doors. What do you have? You have yourself. That's it. What happens when someone makes a little window in that room? Suddenly, what do they see? They see the land, the earth, the grass, the flowers, the trees, the people walking about. He sees the rain, the clouds, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything. We start off life in a little box. We start off life as being that arrogant, obnoxious brat that all children are. Once we open up our little, our, our little world, once we open up our heart, once we become a little bit selfless, there's room for God and for other people in our world. If we're selfish, there's no room for God and no room for other people in our world. Essentially, the quality that unlocks the heart of the individual, that allows them to have great interpersonal relationships, is the same quality that allows them to have great relationships with the Almighty, to have faith. If you're selfish, you have neither faith nor kindness. If you're a leader, if you open up your heart, you have room for both. And I think you guys some examples where this could apply. Like, you know, we think of, you know, there was that controversy a couple days ago, hope and, uh, thoughts and prayers. Anyone saw those, those, that controversy? Oh, you know, is that going to help the people? Thoughts and prayers, get some gut control, whatever. Oh, yeah, okay. So what does it mean, thoughts and prayers? What does it mean to visit the sick? What does it mean to, to, to actually pray for someone who's, who's not well? I found my grandfather writes over here. He says, you know, the, the, if, of course, thoughts and prayers is often empty words. Oh, thoughts and prayers are with the... Usually it means non- nonsense, right? Usually it means nothing. He says an example like this. He says, when someone visits the sick, the visitor's job is to get into the situation of the sick person, to feel his pain, to help him as much as he can, and to pray for him. One example. What about someone who's mourning? What's the job of a mourner? Someone's dad died. Someone's spouse died. Someone's brother died. What's their job? What's their responsibility? Reflection. Okay. You're talking about the friend of someone who's mourning? No, 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 no. We'll get to that person in, in a bit. The mourner himself. To me, this was a surprise. Well, that's selfishness. You lost something. That's selfish. Yeah, of course. So he says like this. It's to feel the pain 
of the dead person right now that is faced with judgment. After someone dies, they face judgment. I never thought you I never thought of that this either. Yeah, but I mean, you're the. You're the and that's why, by the way. One. I, I, okay, but think about it this way. That's why we have the Shiva, and we have the Shloshim, and we have the, you know, the, the yard sites. All those days, all those um, um, demarcation, all those, uh, um, um, uh, those, those, those different points in time, they parallel what happens to the soul once it's dead. The day of its death, the day of its burial, the day of seven, six, seven days past that, 30 days past that, a year past that, every year on the day of its death. All those are days where the soul experiences a scrutiny and judgment. The, 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 the responsibility of the bereaver is to identify with the pain of the soul. To me, this was a surprise. Wow. Because you're right. You sit there and... Everyone's like, oh, it's so painful for me. What what painful for you? What about the person who died? He's dead. Well, he's not dead. That's true, it's painful for you. That's right. And that's the goal. And, and the people that come to visit the person who's who's bereaving, their goal is to feel their pain, to experience their loss as well. To think about what it's like to lose a, a parent, to what, what it's like to lose a spouse. What's like to lose someone who's very close and friend and friendly with you? So after five years, on the anniversary, yes. you're feeling, you're thinking back of the pain that happened five years before, because they're not going through it again, especially if you believe. Okay, or or, or or but 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 it's also a day to try to think of things that you can do to help that person. Once someone's dead, they cannot do any mitzvahs. However. Those of us that are still around, we can do mitzvahs, and we we do a mitzvah in their merit, that can actually affect their their status. So if I do a mitzvah in the merit of someone who's dead, that's the one loophole that that person can actually, you know, it's like smuggling stuff into prison, right? You know, once you're in prison, you can't do any business, right? But if you smuggle stuff in, right? It's a weird example. But that's really what it is. You know, once someone's dead, they lost the opportunity to do any mitzvahs. But there are ways around it. For example, if someone, let's say, wrote Torah, a, a Torah insight, right? So the Talmud tells us is that when someone, when I teach the Torah of Rashi, when we study the Torah of the Rambam, their lips are speaking in the grave. That's what it says. What does that mean? It means if you actually open up the grave of the Rambam, when someone, you see his lips moving, no, that's not what it means. It means that they're still, even though they're dead, they're in the grave, it's as if they're still studying Torah. Why? Because we're studying their Torah. And we can affect them. Sometimes I think of the phrase, if my mother only knew, I could hear my mother say, you know, if I'm doing something, you hear in the background, if my mother only knew that I'm repeating some of the same things that she might have told me, I remember when. Mm -hmm. She did, but sometimes things come out. That right. I would not have done had she not done it a certain way. Yeah, but so uh, or, or but let, let's try to okay, give let, let's try to give that a religious or, or spiritual spin. Let's say we you do a kindness, and you say I, this kindness was taught to me by my mom. Okay. So that's a way of doing a mitzvah and kind of linking your mom along alongside you. So you're set because you have all these videos out there. After you're gone, people will be clicking on them. You can be. His lips are going to be moving. That's right, but I, 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 it's not enough, guy. I want you guys teaching this also, uh, you know. 
you teach this. And by the way, like this, let's say someone influences someone to study Torah, but that person goes on to influence the second person. And that person goes on to influence the third person. All that is linked back to the original. It's like a pyramid scheme. It's like a multi-level marketing. <laughs> That's what it is, right? So I want you guys to go and influence other people to teach them Torah, and those people will go teach other people Torah. Then I think I maybe have a, I have a swinging chance, but the <laughs> but but yeah, of course, you know. And and we think about what we, what we can do for our parents and grandparents. Did Amway study? Herbal Herbalife, Herbal Herbalife. That's right, baby. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Like when you like, uh, you know, I. I this is a subject we talked about a little bit earlier, but when someone writes their will, right? So we just have this thing, declaration of intent. To, you know, what's this idea? The idea is that you can have Torah and mitzvahs happening for you, even though you cannot do it on your own. That's incredible, incredibly valuable. And to us, we're like, eh, mitzvahs, I did plenty of them, right? But once our soul is isolated, it'll crave nothing more than having mitzvahs done for it. This is a good time for, the, for Rabbi Gordon. Yeah, exactly. To yeah, so. Did you, did you guys get coach. together beforehand? Uh, no, I'm just I'm, I'm trying to help him fundraise, right? But um, no, I, think about it this way. I think that it's it's a, think of it as, as a hedge, right? You want a hedge, right? Yeah, maybe there's a five percent chance that I actually have a soul. Let's assume, right? Five percent chance. Let's assume it's only that. And there's only a one percent uh, chance that if I have a soul, the soul will crave nothing more than mitzvahs. So to me, I'm, I think the number is much higher. I'm, I'm going 100 percent in the soul, and 100 percent. I'm, I'm, I'm confident that we that our soul wants nothing more than mitzvahs and Torah, and we have one. I'm, I'm sure about that. But let's assume it's only five percent, one percent, five percent. So that's what you know, a point zero five percent chance. So why don't we invest point zero five percent towards that, or even more, because you know the kids will squander the money anyhow, right? So let's take. <laughs> Let's take our will and put in the will that we want $1,000 of our, of our estate to go towards buying sets of Talmud to put into yeshivas and have students study this. But have a line in there that the study goes to the merit of, of this, of the donor. That's the, probably the best thing you can do with your money. Probably the best thing is to have a set of Talmud donated in, in the merit of you. Probably, probably the best thing. Probably that's the best thing. That's not so what? <laughs> what else are you doing with your money, right? <laughs> it's not self. That it's everything not... that you do has some selfish motive. Okay, but who, who's going to watch over? It means you are the most invested in your spiritual reality. I don't know if it's selfish to, to try to do mitzvahs. Ah, it's selfish, right? It's not taken away from someone else's mitzvahs necessarily. And and you are responsible for yourself, right? You're the only one that could do it, right? You right. You, you know you have the most invested in this. No, think about that. You could have people studying Torah every day. Hundreds of people studying Torah out of books that you donated in, in your merit. And it's it's so cheap and, and you know, and the impact that's gonna have is enormous. That's true. Well yet you need to have it in a place where you know there's a teacher that can teach it. Right, you have it over here. Like I don't know how much uh, um, tread. A lot of uh, right. Don't understand them or can't read them. But that they are like taking up space. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you're going to do such mm-hmm. a wonderful merit of, say, getting Talmud, or maybe. Like how many people pick up those books 
you know, just the, 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 it's safer the, safer bet to go with the yeshiva. You know, I'm just saying to, 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 to read, yes, you know, people and people actually know how to use the books and know which way to open it. In your family, go ahead. You with grandparents, sisters. How many of them rejected the religion of anybody, or you know, did not become as traditional as like your your In my family. Yeah, you know, your brothers, sisters, your parents, brothers, you know, there's... Thankfully, uh, our family is uh, from really good stock, and uh, I, I think it's probably the merits of, you know, some grandparents, who knows what, but uh, in our family, our immediate family, I'm one of nine. All of us are, are observant. That's I mean, wonderful, Shomer Shabbos and everything. Um, I, have, I have some brothers that are really remarkable people. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, you know, that's uh, wonderful. Um, but... Um, my cousins on them. I think they're all Shomer Shabbos. They're all Shomer Shabbos, all observant. Maybe one or two are like kind of on the fence on it, you know. But, uh, but it's pretty remarkable. Rejected. And what's interesting is, you know, the, the, the studies show, the recent Pew study they did a couple of years ago about this in-depth dive into uh, into the Jewish communities in America. They found that the people that were the most traditional, the most quote-unquote orthodox, are the ones that are, have the least likelihood of their kids rejecting Judaism. Um, whereas you have, you know, the synagogue, we had uh, Lee Wunsch speak to us. Uh, Lee Wunsch, the CEO of the Federation, he says that he goes to Beth Yishurin, and him and his wife, Roe, in their 60s, are the youngest people there. Well, what does that tell us about the success and failure of that kind of approach towards religion? It obviously is a failure. That's what he said. Don't look at me, right? If, if the biggest conservative shul in America, Beth Yishurin, has everyone over 60 and no young people and they're scheming and trying to find a way to get the young people involved, obviously what they're doing is, is what's wrong. And they'll, but they'll say, ah, we'll never consider to, to have Torah and to have, you know, to, to, you know, to try really uh, commitment towards Torah. That, that approach, that seems so radical. But that's the approach that the Orthodox are doing and they have very little, uh, a very little slippage, if you will. Right? You know, uh, a very little um, Reaction or whatever. Uh, attrition. Very little. So maybe that works. Is that crazy to think that maybe that actually works? No, no, I'm just curious. That's why I asked. Maybe if we actually inv- tell our kids that this is really meaningful and it's really true and it's, and it's really something you ought to investigate, maybe then the kids will actually follow what we say. And if we say, yeah, it's nice to have it on the weekends to go to synagogue on maybe they'll actually listen to us and say, yeah, it's nice, but I'd rather do something else. But see, you're living it. So they see it. So they oh, see yes. the sincerity I, and the genuine. It's like being kosher in Israel. Everybody, well... Well, it doesn't make it easy, not because it was easy, but it was... The community did. It wasn't difficult to go, look, we didn't have to drive down to Meyerland to get this or that, you know. <laughs> Either way, guys, um, leadership, selflessness. It's demanded on each one of us. We could do it. I say maybe a good starting point is to try to just notice other people. You know, just notice. Oh, hey, did someone else there? Someone else exists. Wow, ain't that nice? Noticing, right? Just the vision is a starting point. Abraham saw, but he saw. Moses saw, but he also saw. He saw details. He saw nuances. He really tried to superimpose himself into someone else's situation. We do that starting point, I think, uh, towards maybe a, a fruitful life of, of Jewish greatness and leadership. Well, okay, we're supposed guys. to be the light of the nation. That's right. So what are we doing? <laughs> you see, this is, we got a light. 
Okay, guys, next week, our uh, annual uh, discussion yes. on, uh, on the JCD and the Talmud. Very exciting. That's right. Email me. Uh, our rabbi won't be any ideas for classes. We're building a, it's going to be a good curriculum next year. Yes, looking forward to it. So far, but someone says yeah, that we're going to do this. Why is it